an Atlanta mass shooting and calls for action. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy, one of the political insiders here at the AJC. Greg Bluestein is off today, so I am joined by our third political insider, Tia Mitchell. Tia, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Just like Greg, you're in your car. Yes, just like Greg, we are always on the go. So I'm on a little road trip, but I pulled over and I'm ready to get into these political hot topics. So again, thank you so much for having me. Well, coming up on today's episode, Senator Raphael Warnock calls for action in the wake of recent mass shootings. The date is set for Georgia's 2024 primary. We'll answer questions from our listener mailbag, and we'll have our who's up and who's down for the week. We invite you to join us and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. And we're back on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm here with Tia Mitchell. Tia, on Wednesday afternoon, about lunchtime, we all started to get alerts on our phone that a shooter had uh, opened fire in a midtown medical office building. It wasn't exactly clear what had happened in that exact moment, but we now know that Dion Patterson, who's a 24-year-old Coast Guard veteran, uh, opened fire. His mother now says that he was uh, suffering from mental illness. She described it as him having a mental break. Um, Very tragically, one woman has lost her life. Four more are fighting for their lives in the hospital, and we are faced now with another mass shooting here in Georgia, um, the reaction has been really all over the place from Georgia leaders. Um, we have seen uh, Republicans taking a, a relatively low profile. We did hear from Governor Kemp um, toward the end of the day after the shooter had been detained. But Tia, one of the um, reactions that seems to really make the most news was Senator Raphael Warnock in Washington. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so Senator Warnock... Um when the shooting was still a pretty active scene, quite frankly, the um, suspect you mentioned had not yet been caught. And Senator Warnock decided he was going to speak on the Senate floor, which in and of itself is pretty rare. Um, And so for him to make a rare floor speech and to come and speak out about yet another, like you said, high profile shooting, Quite frankly, and I, this is kind of the sad thing is, depending on your definition, this doesn't even reach how some people categorize a mass shooting because only one person died, you know? And so in, and I say only, you know, with quotation marks uh, yeah. for our audio audience, you know, but when you think about other recent high profile mass shootings, a school in Nashville 
a bank in Louisville, Kentucky, my hometown, a sweet 16 birthday party in rural Alabama. And what we didn't know until Wednesday was that Senator Warnock had already been fired up about incidents like those. He was talking behind the scenes with Senate leader Chuck Schumer saying, you know, all these people are being killed. These are very tragic shootings. Why isn't anyone saying anything? He even met one-on-one with Senator Schumer on Wednesday, you know, morning. And then roughly an hour later, he started getting alerts that his hometown, um, not only was there a high-profile public, you know, in a public place, this shooting incident, but his own children were on lockdown because their schools were somewhere in the vicinity. And you can tell that fired him up. And he went from behind the scenes saying, why aren't we talking more about guns to this fiery, passionate speech on the Senate floor where, again, he basically says thoughts and prayers are not enough. We need to be doing something We can't accept that this is part of the fabric of our society. As a pastor, I'm I'm praying for those who are affected by this tragedy, but I hasten to say that thoughts and prayers are not enough. And in fact, it is a contradiction to say that you are thinking and praying and then do nothing. It, it, It is to make a mockery of prayer. It is to trivialize faith. We pray not only with our lips, we pray with our legs. We pray by taking action. So we heard Senator Warnock right there. You could just hear the frustration in his voice. He also had another line. He he was describing the fact that really nowhere is safe anymore. You're not safe at the bank. You're not safe at the grocery store. You're not safe at a preschool. You're not safe in your doctor's office. And he said even church, the sanctuary is no longer a sanctuary. So not only did Senator Warnock's two children um, find themselves in lockdown, and you could hear the frustration in his voice right there and the concern and just the passion. As you said, as events were unfolding on Wednesday afternoon, we started to see almost in real time reaction from state lawmakers who were directly affected by the shooting in Midtown. We know that State Senator Josh McLaurin was in the restaurant directly next door to that Northside Medical Building, and he tweeted out, while he was in lockdown, we don't have to live this way, calling for more gun control measures. Um, I've heard from a number of other elected officials who were in that area. Um, Also, State Representative Terry Anulowitz represents Smyrna, and as the a shooter moved from Midtown. He went up to Cobb County and left a van um, or pickup truck rather that he had carjacked and he left it in Cobb County. Uh, uh, Representative Anulowitz's children were at Campbell High School and Campbell Middle School. Those schools were locked down. And so she was starting to get messages on her phone that her children were locked down in this real live shooter situation. It was not a drill. Um, It was something real. It ended up that he was over closer to the battery. Um, But we just saw these cascading effects of people who were not directly involved in this horrible tragedy, but felt their lives touched by it. And that fear, that familiar fear, that could something possibly have happened to somebody that uh, you love, a child, 
a parent, a friend, a relative um, in these mass shootings that are just happening. It's it feels like there's one every day. And I'm sure if we got out the data, it, there practically is one happening every day. Um, but Tia, tell us in Washington a little bit more of the reaction up there, because Lucy McBath has also been directly affected by this kind of tragedy. And that's really why she ran for Congress in the first place. Yes. Yeah, so what was so interesting was you know, almost immediately, again, even while this manhunt for the shooter was still underway, you had Democrats saying exactly what Senator McLaurin was saying, you know, why are we living like this? We shouldn't have to live like this. We shouldn't be in fear. It can happen to any of us at any given time. And so they were quick to say This is yet another example, not the only example, but yet another example of why we need gun control, why we need to talk about this and address the issues of access to guns. And then Republicans kind of fell into mostly the thoughts and prayers camp. If Republicans were saying anything, and like you said, people like Governor Kemp and a lot of our state officials, they waited until later Um, Governor Kemp's office doesn't call it a delay. They just said they deferred to, you know, the law enforcement and Mayor um, Dickens, for example, while it was still an active scene. But once the suspect was apprehended, Governor Kemp's statement focused on, you know, grieving for the families and praising first responders and praising law enforcement, um, but avoiding the wider political debate at all. Um, the So far, um, the only Republican I've seen who's really weighed into the politics of what happened is Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we know she represents that far-right, ultra-conservative Uh, arm of the Republican Party and her statement represents it. She, you know, um, criticized Democrats. She criticized Mayor Dickens. She criticized D.A. Fonnie Willis. And her statement basically was that Democrats should be held accountable for not doing more to rein in crime. This is what she says. Unfortunately, this is one of many murders that happen every single week in crime-ridden Atlanta. The Democrat mayor and Democrat DA won't do their job to protect the citizens in our state's capital. So that means every hospital, business, and person should be protected with a firearm. So what she's saying is that more guns, more access to guns is what's needed. While, again, there are Democrats, a lot of them saying what we need is more gun control. Now, again, most Republicans are not going into that political, you know, hot potato the way Marjorie Taylor Greene is. But I would think that there are a lot of Republican lawmakers, a lot of conservatives who may not have said it the way she said it, but agree with her in principle. You know, Governor Kemp last year signed open carry that allowed people to carry firearms in Georgia, concealed firearms without a state permit, for example. Um, So that's that divide that we're seeing where Republicans want wider access to guns. They say that can help address crimes like what happened Wednesday, where Democrats say we need less access to guns. 
It really feels like we are just no closer to a solution on this, that each side feels like it has really dug into its camps. And um, Democrats are saying consistently it's the guns. We are also hearing from law enforcement that the proliferation of guns on the streets of Atlanta and all across the state make it just easier for criminals to commit crimes, but also for people who are mentally ill, people who are struggling um, with their own mental health status, including potentially the shooter who we saw in Atlanta. It is too easy for them to get guns in these cases. Um, Somebody who did take action a Republican um, was House Speaker David Ralston with the mental health bill that he pushed forward through the General Assembly last session. It was very important to him to deal with this really chronic lack of services, chronic lack of inpatient beds and insurance coverage for people who um, law enforcement know are struggling. They call them their frequent flyers. They see them in and out of jails, um, but were not able to get mental health services. So Republicans Republicans um, pushed through that bill. It had really unanimous support, actually. It was kind of the highlight of the 2022 legislative session. Fast forward to this session, and uh, Republicans in the state Senate blocked the follow-on to that mental health bill. So even for Republicans who say, don't focus on the guns, focus on the mental health piece of this, um, there was a bill, a very robust bill in the legislature as passed by the House. The Senate, it could not even get a vote in committee. And so that's an area where um, I think there had been an opportunity, but uh, it certainly wasn't met. And then in terms of any kind of gun control measures in the state, Michelle Au, who's now a state representative, had a bill called the Pediatric Safety Act, um, some version of that. Uh, It was to require parents to lock guns away in their homes if they had young children in their homes. Um, And that was just a complete non-starter at the Georgia General Assembly. It did get a hearing, but the chairman of that committee made sure that people understood that was not a hearing. It was a conversation, that there would be no vote on that, and that bill was going nowhere. So are these lawmakers in a position that they can find a compromise on guns right now? In Georgia, it does not feel like it. Um, even the concept of a red flag law, you know, sets off this entire conversation of well, who gets to decide who is not mentally fit? Why would you outsource that to a doctor? Well, those are the people who typically do it. But there are all kinds of speed bumps, even in something that seems like it would be relatively easy to pass at the state level. It is not at all easy to pass when you're talking about taking guns out of the hands of people. So what's happening in Washington? Are you feeling that similar kind of intransigence? Yeah, definitely. And I want to start by reminding everyone that there was bipartisan gun legislation passed last year by Congress, signed into law by President Biden. That was in reaction to more high-profile mass shootings. The shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and the shooting at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And that did things like expand background checks for people ages 18 through 21, um, strengthen penalties for gun trafficking, um, provided money for mental health and school safety, and it also created incentives for states like Georgia who don't have those red flag laws to take guns away from people who are deemed a threat to implement them. Um, But even then, Democrats said, we appreciate what we were able to do. Again, it was a bipartisan bill. It passed with the help of 
Senate Republicans, because we know there's the filibuster in the Senate, so you need at least 60 votes. At the time, Democrats only had 50. It was much more narrow in the House, but Democrats had the majority then, and so that's how they were able to still pass that bipartisan gun bill last year. The difference now is Republicans control the House. So even if Warnock was able to get Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans on one accord for some type of compromise, knowing one thing that Warnock's been saying is, look at the polling. Universal background checks is very popular, popular even among Republicans when you poll them. Red flag laws, popular. Uh, Minimum ages for especially assault style rifles, not a ban, but a minimum age for ownership polls very well. And so ideally, those are the things that you would think Congress could rally around, knowing that even when they had to go back home to their constituents, even Republicans uh, would be doing something in line with what their constituents would support. But we know that in the House, especially with those far right members that think like Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're not willing to support anything that in any way can be interpreted as limiting access to guns, as you've already mentioned, which means that what Warnock wants is even harder now with Republicans in the majority in the House. Even if there are the votes, you know, enough moderate Republicans or Republicans that represent swing districts. Okay, well, we will continue to watch that debate both in Washington and here in Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy, along with Tia Mitchell. Greg is off and we'll be back on next Wednesday's episode. Well, we think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com dot com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Tia, as long as we have you here, I definitely want to make sure that we hear from you about how the new members of the Georgia delegation are settling in. We have a Republican House, um, thanks in part to the fact that Georgia Republicans picked up a seat in their House delegation. Georgians now have nine Republicans, five Democrats in the delegation. And that means that they have a whole lot of power. They're in the majority. And it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene making themselves known up there. Tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing and hearing. So now that Republicans are back in the majority in the House, that 
we always had a majority Republican delegation, but in Washington, they were in the minority. And now they're in the majority. And a lot of our members have really powerful positions. We have, you know, Representative Austin Scott, who's vice chairman of the Agriculture Committee, which we know is a big deal. Um, Of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her alliance with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy makes her a big deal. But we also have these two new freshman members that we're keeping an eye on, and that's Representative Mike Collins of uh, Jackson and Representative Rich McCormick of Suwannee. And even um, McCormick, I will say, he's always been kind of more comfortable on the stage, he literally is a former like model, marine and model. People, fun fact about Rich McCormick, those who are old enough to remember the U.S. Marines recruitment ad that was like the chess pieces. Yeah. He was the Marine at the end. He was the chess piece. He was, no, he was like the Marine, the pretty boy Marine at the very end of the <laughs> ad that was like, <laughs> we slayed the beast or whatever. Yes. The Marines would tell you he was the tough Marine at the end. Yes. Yes. The tough Marine at the end. So he's just more comfortable. So he does a lot more of the TV hits and um, he started his own podcast. Um, I think Mike Collins, he's been a little bit more cautious to find his footing. I will say that both of them, neither one of them have officially aligned with like the House Freedom Caucus, but both of them thus far are pretty conservative in their politics. And so they're new. And, you know, members always usually when you're not Marjorie Taylor Greene, usually you lay low for your first, you know, couple of months or years. And so they both do seem to be taking that stance, but kind of feeling their way out. Um, But both pretty conservative, pretty ambitious, the both of them, again, especially Rich McCormick. And um, I'm just watching to see what our delegation does. So many eyes on Georgia. So many eyes on Georgia. Now, Mike Collins' last name may be familiar to some of our listeners, probably the same ones old enough to remember the Marine ad, will also remember Congressman Mac Collins. That is Mike Collins' father. So he comes from this political family. He knows how the system works. And so he's somebody who, when I see him, I don't see a deer in headlights. He kind of, he knows what's going on. And Rich McCormick, to your point, very telegenic, very at ease in front of groups, maybe because he also campaigned before. It definitely doesn't look like his first rodeo either. So even the freshmen don't feel like freshmen. Um, Let's talk about one of the sophomores in the delegation, who is Andrew Clyde from, uh, not from Athens, from outside of Athens, but he represents that that ninth district um, that includes portions of Athens. I've seen his name quite a bit in national news recently. What's he been up to? So, yeah, so Andrew Clyde. So remember when he first ran for office, it was because basically he was like the the IRS came after him as a businessman and basically froze some of his money. And he was so outraged, he sued the IRS and won. And then he was like, I'm running to Congress because these this bureaucracy, I'm going to, you know. So he, again, is extremely conservative. He was one of those 20 Republicans who for like, what, three or four days 
kept Kevin McCarthy from becoming speaker. Yep. And he continues to insist. He's part of the reason why Kevin McCarthy uh, has been forced to embrace kind of the more ultra right wing of the party because their majority is very narrow. And so that's what we're seeing from Representative Clyde. Um, One of the things he's really got a lot of attention for is he sponsored several bills that basically goes after the District of Columbia's local government. You know, because D.C. is not a state, it's technically an entity of the federal government. So even though they have a mayor and a city council, Congress can overrule them. And Representative Clyde was successful in one of his bills. Um, The District of Columbia Council created new sentencing guidelines. They said, you know, it was out of date. Some things just needed to be adjusted, but it was very controversial. The mayor opposed the sentencing guidelines. Uh, law enforcement opposed the new sentencing guidelines. They said the council was being too progressive, had gone too far. Andrew Clyde submitted the bill. Eventually, President Biden agreed with Andrew Clyde and the bill passed and became law. So Andrew Clyde has a bill signed into law that kind of goes... Um, cracks down on D.C. Um, There are other bills that Andrew Clyde has also got passed um, to further crack down on D.C. For example, they have new body cam guidelines. That bill also passed the House, but that won't, if it passes the Senate, it would be vetoed by uh, President Biden. But part of Clyde's brand right now was kind of going against what he considers a too woke, too progressive District of Columbia government. And it is kind of part, it kind of calls back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show, where we have these hard right conservatives who say crime in our cities, you don't solve it by limiting access to guns. You solve it by reining in what they consider, you know, local governments, democratic led governments that they believe haven't done enough to get tough on crime, And that's kind of what is reflected in a lot of the legislation Andrew Clyde has introduced specifically about the District of Columbia. Well, it's just I can't I'm trying to still wrap my head around Andrew Clyde, Joe Biden and Muriel Bowser all being on the same side of an issue. Yeah, well, that's exactly what happened. It may not ever happen again. (laughs) And it definitely there are a lot of Democrats not so much mad at Mayor Bowser because she said all along she opposed the sentencing Um, the new sentencing guidelines. But a lot of Democrats said, even if we don't necessarily like what the city of D.C. is doing, do we want the federal government telling a local agency, a local government, how to conduct itself? And it used to be Republicans were the ones who said local control, you know, states' rights, local control. But now you have Republicans saying, not in this case, not in the case of D.C. So that caused a lot of heartburn and people were pretty ticked off at President Biden. Yeah, although I think in that case, Muriel Bowser had vetoed those guidelines and then they overrode her veto. So this has been going back and forth, back and forth. And uh, finally, it was Andrew Clyde, the new sheriff in town, who uh, rode in and um, I guess essentially helped make the final decision on that. But, you know, those weird... And by that time, I was going to say, by that time, the District of Columbia tried to avoid it by saying, okay, we're not going to do it. We're going to rescind it. But it was like too late Andrew Clyde still got his bill passed. (laughs) Okay. What is those 
really unexpected, unusual coalitions that seem to yield the biggest surprises in legislation and make certain things possible that you didn't think were possible. So that's always why I feel like hope is not lost on any particular issue because you never know what might align one side um, with another. And now speaking of one side with another, the Secretary of State of Georgia has announced that both Republicans and Democrats are going to have their presidential primary in Georgia on Tuesday, March 12th. So everyone should go ahead and mark their calendars. You're going to be voting in the presidential primary on Tuesday, March 12th, 2024. That is not that early date that Democrats were really wanting to have and actually trying to convince us was happening until about yesterday. And we had to keep telling them this is not happening. Um, so uh, the suspense is over for the Democrats. They're not going to get that early primary that President Joe Biden was trying to give Democrats. But now we know that date now pegs it to be a week that is lets Georgia essentially stand relatively on its own. I believe Mississippi is also voting that day and one other day. But it's a week after Super Tuesday. So we'll have to see what kind of influence Georgia voters can really have in those elections. Have you heard from Democrats today, Tia, who are who have any kind of reaction to that date? I haven't heard much yet. I think that Democrats knew it was going to be tough once it was clear that they needed Secretary Raffensperger and therefore needed Republicans to go along with moving the primary up. And the National Republican Party was never really entertaining that possibility. And there were and as a result, because the National Republican Party wasn't entertaining it, the state Republican Party, the state of Georgia could have been penalized if they did it. And so without any movement there, and again, Democrats, you know, they're powerful nationally. In Georgia, not so much. And even with some recent great wins, Democrats still don't run things in Georgia. So, um, you know, it was like, yeah, Democrats really want it, but that's not going to move Brad Raffensperger. That's not going to move Brian Kemp. I mean, and I'll, I'll say, and I'm sure, I know we've talked about it on the podcast. I don't think Kemp and Raffensperger would have been mad about Georgia moving up in the calendar. But again, they were dealing with their own national party apparatus and not willing to buck their national party to a great degree. Um, But I do, I think it does, unfortunately, this is another big loss for Georgia Democrats after losing out on landing the convention in 2024. Now they lose out on the chance to be an early primary state. Um, I would guess that You know, people like Chair Nakima Williams, who's also, of course, a member of Congress, people like Mayor Dickens, people like former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms are kind of calling the Biden administration and saying, give us something. So maybe we could expect another big debate in Atlanta. You know, who knows? But I I would think they're saying, give us something. Yeah, I do feel like Georgia's kind of gone 0 for 2 with the Democrats lately, even though the Democrats went 2-0 for for Joe Biden and the Senate uh, the last time around. But I'm not here to keep score. We're just here to report what happens. Um, So, well, better luck next time, Democrats. In the meantime, (laughs) Brad Raffensperger's like, I'm not holding two primaries. So you guys get your house in order. And until you do, we're doing it 
on March 12th. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for all of these deep dives into the most exciting pieces of uh, Georgia political news. And that brings us up to one of our favorite pieces of the show, Tia. Every single time. It gets me every time. It's the Politically Georgia listener mailbag. You can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. That number is 770-810-5297. Get a pencil and write it down. It's 770-810-5297. Shane, what do we have today from our listener mailbag? Get a pencil and write it down. They should have it on speed dial on their cell phones. <laughs> I still use a pencil. Is that not so crazy? Like I love a mechanical pencil. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with old school. And in fact, today's question from the listener mailbag was delivered a little old school. Steve uh, sent us an email. He didn't uh, didn't call the hotline, but you can email the show. You can also use our Facebook and Twitter pages. It's Politically Georgia. So you can send your messages there. We'll get them. Here is Steve's question. He asks, how is it that it's not an issue that if elected, Trump would only be able to serve for four years? No reelection eligibility. If you're a party supporter, don't you want a candidate who conceivably could serve eight consecutive years? Otherwise, you're a lame duck on election day. Obviously, that could lead to complete disregard for polls and opinion ratings and lead to further damage to the party. This has never been brought up that I can remember. Okay. Well, Steve, great question. You're right. You're, you're half right, Steve. Um, Donald Trump cannot succeed himself if he wins a term as president. Um, you're allowed to succeed yourself if you've had one term in office, but not if this is your second term in office. So um, yeah, Donald Trump, just like Joe Biden, they're on the same kind of an even playing field on that one. Um, they're each going to be only serving four years if they end up winning. Now, Mike Pompeo did bring that up. He's the only one who is kind of launched that as an attack against uh, uh, Donald Trump. Um, but of course, Mike Pompeo isn't even running for president anymore. So I don't know. I haven't heard anybody else bring it up. And maybe that's part of the attraction for these two guys, Tia, that they would only serve four years if elected. I mean, Joe Biden is going to be what, if he wins another term, he's going to be 86. I would dare say he should want to retire um, at 86 and um, Donald Trump would probably be around 81 or 82. So again, you would think that they would both be fine with not being eligible to serve another term. Well, you would think so, but it's amazing how some people don't want to leave the stage. So we'll, we'll just see if either one of these two, um, uh, we do think, we definitely think Joe Biden's going to be the nominee, you know, unexpected circumstances, uh, notwithstanding. Um, Donald Trump is looking strong in the early polls, but we're, we're going to have to see, but we still haven't really heard it come up as a major, um, as a major point of uh, attack yet. So we'll have to see. That now brings us to our final segment of the episode, and that is our who's up and who's down for the week. Tia, we always like to end on a high note. So who is your who's down for the week? So I have decided that I think who's down is Georgia native and Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. 
because it's just been one revelation after another, you know, about his friend and billionaire, um, Mr. Harlan. And and most recent, the most recent revelation is that he paid for Clarence Thomas's great nephew's boarding school at and it's a very expensive boarding school which not only leads to a lot of questions about financial disclosures and is again created more conversation in Washington around ethics codes for Supreme Court justices but I think it also begs the question Clarence Thomas has a very successful career as a jurist so why did he need his nephew's tuition paid by someone else? It just it creates so many questions. It does create some questions. Um, I don't I don't think jurists make as much money as your average private practice lawyer. And I did see a defense from a friend of uh, Justice Thomas's saying, hey, this was a private matter. And um, he took his grandnephew in as his own child and raised him and felt like um, it was a service. He did it at the expense to himself and his family, et cetera, et cetera. Why is the press getting into this? And I think all of that is very laudable. The question is, why didn't people know about it. Um, and uh, it may not have been technically against ethics rules or technically illegal for Harlan Crow's company to pay that tuition. Um, but it continues uh, to raise this appearance of a conflict of interest. And I think that's the problem. I think these people expect members of the Supreme Court to be above reproach, not sort of pulling out the rule book and saying, well, technically on line 16, I did not violate this rule. So I think that's the real problem with that. I think he is a who's down. My who's down is Herschel Walker. I did not think I would be revisiting Herschel Walker on this podcast anytime soon, but there uh, was additional reporting this week from the Daily Beast who seems to have an inside source with the Herschel Walker campaign or the former campaign. They have text messages from a major donor, um, a major Republican donor, with Herschel Walker soliciting um, a significant amount of money, not for his campaign or his super PAC, which is very typical, um, but for a private company asking this major donor uh, to wire more than half a million dollars to a private company of his, that is highly unusual. And if it's true, it's potentially highly illegal. Um, so this campaign kind of continues to be um, the opposite of the gift that keeps on giving. It kind of continues to be something that um, uh, is a place where Herschel Walker was running afoul of all sorts of rules, norms, um, expected behavior, and potentially um, campaign finance laws. Yeah, and it's interesting. You were, you know, we're all guessing at like who's leaking all the this juicy stuff to the Daily Beast. I thought it was possibly the staff of that billionaire donor who was like, "We've been trying to get our money back, and we couldn't do it through the channels. So maybe if we like out him, we might get our boss's money back." Because you can tell the man really wants his money back, or at least wanted it to go to legitimate campaign reasons and without evidence that that happened, you could tell, according to the emails, he was concerned about getting his money back. Yes, they literally had the receipts and they shared them with the Daily Beast. So I'm sure um, lawyers somewhere are starting to talk to each other. Um, Okay, so Tia, who is your who's up for this week? 
So my who's up for this week is Marta, General Manager and Chief Executive Officer, Kali Greenwood, because nearly 140,000 people rode the Marta last weekend. They came and saw Taylor Swift. They came and saw Janet Jackson. (laughs) They came and cheered on the Hawks. And, you know, Marta gets a bad rap sometimes as, you know, not being the most accessible, not having enough stops but Marta showed its worth last weekend everybody got home safely you know people were encouraged to like use Marta because it was going to be so much going on and so much traffic and it all seemed to work out really well that's what you want out of your public transportation so shout out to Mr. Greenwood that is a great point. Tens of thousands of Swifties moved safely throughout Atlanta and safely back home. Way to go, Marta. <laughs> that really was quite an achievement. Not to mention Janet Jackson's fans, who I don't know what their uh, term of art is, but they all got there and back The Rhythm Nation. Well. Excuse me, the Rhythm Nation. Well, congrats, Rhythm Nation as well. Um, okay, my who's up is the Atlanta police department and other members of law enforcement here in the Atlanta area. The images coming out of Midtown on Wednesday showed members of the APD sprinting, running as fast as they could toward the the site of the shooting. And you just look at that in that moment, that just reveals so much about who those people are and what they put on Every day, the kind of the agreement they make with themselves, what they're willing to do to protect people in this city. And uh, despite the fact that the shooter left the jurisdiction, ended up in Cobb County, there's this incredible web of uh, more than a dozen police departments all around Metro Atlanta. It was a really um, kind of, I think, a very quick resolution and a resolution that ended up, I think, safer than most people had feared. Um, Nobody else was hurt in that process. And so my hat is just off to all of the officers and the leadership of the APD, the Cobb Sheriff's Department, and that um, entire group of men and women who do that every single day when we don't see it on TV. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's still early and I know there's going to be so much about more to come about the law enforcement response. But you know, as tragic as yesterday was, we no loss of life is acceptable. No injury is acceptable. We also know things could have been worse, especially if the suspect had remained at large for longer. And and of course, we've seen past incidents where the initial response from law enforcement was questioned. And so um, it is a testament to all of the first responders um, and police we do we should we should acknowledge when it appears that officers are doing the right thing in really high stress situations you know the fact that they were sprinting to the danger yes that's what they're trained to do that's what their job requires them to do but that's not what always happens so you know in real time to think about what we ask of law enforcement it is quite astounding well Thank you so much for being here, Tia. On that note, thank you so much to our listeners for uh, tuning in and coming to find the Politically Georgia podcast. Find links to the topics that we talked about in today's episode description. And you can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday and every Friday or whenever big news breaks. 
We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.